Bibles to Romans chapter 12. If we have children, uh, in the, that we have children's church downstairs, if you want to go join uh, Mr. Boyden, um, you are welcome. Or if you want to stay up here, you are, your parents, you make that call. We're happy to, whichever, Romans chapter 12. We are winding down the study on the Christian spiritual life. The, the, um, the study of the Christian spiritual life is a condensing con- condensation of the New Testament because the new order from John 7 that the Holy Spirit would come, he would provide the Holy Spirit for those who believed, that by the time you get to Galatians, they know they're believers and therefore they have the Holy Spirit, Galatians 3, 1 through 5. If, uh, these... these errant Christians are believers and, um, and they have the Holy Spirit. By the, by the time you get to Galatians, uh, in Paul's earliest letter, probably around 48 AD, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. That's, again, Galatians 3, 3 verses 1 through 5, which means that everything that you do, according to John 15, that is pleasing to God will be done abiding in Christ and therefore through the power that the Holy Spirit provides. So that Galatians 5, 16, but I say walk by the Spirit, walk in the power provided by the Holy Spirit and you will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ephesians 5.18, be filled by the Spirit with the result that you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. A singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks at all times. All the things that we do in the Christian life that please God are actually God working through us. That's the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity doing them through us. And that's the study of the Christian spiritual life so that when you see all the commands of the Lord Jesus through his apostles, you say, um, this is all in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we can't say that we're legalistic by insisting on Christian obedience and the works that have been marked out for us. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we, we have our favorite verse to understand that it's not our works that save us. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The way you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the way you come to have eternal life, the way you have the salvation Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is by faith. And that's, what, that's, that's the message to someone that is not a believer, doesn't have the Holy Spirit, doesn't have Christ, doesn't have the life. As you tell them, hey, you need to have the life. And the way you get the life is you get hold of the Son and you believe in Him, who He is, what He's done for you. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ is He changes you. He changes you. And it's not an experiential change where... Well, I just don't feel like certain things anymore. That may have been true when you first believed, but you didn't lose your sin nature. The change is much more important than your feelings. And Ephesians 2.10 tells you the change. For we are, we're, we're, we're saved by grace through faith, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now think about that language. That doesn't mean that from my physical human birth I was created in Christ Jesus he's talking about those who are saved by grace through faith and at the moment I believed in Christ something happened I am created 
in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship. He is the, is the maker and he made us and created us in Christ Jesus. That's technical language for Paul for, for union with Christ. 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is how you become unified, identified with Christ. And we're in Christ, created in Christ unto good works. The works that we do by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. We trust in God. We walk abiding in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and do the works that he's called us to do. And so it's grace works. But we're, that's why he made us for these works. And so some will say, well, you can't, really, you can't really have two, eight, and nine without 10. You've got to tell the unbeliever about the works. And um, I think that's a misunderstanding of some really important theology and what Paul's saying. You do not save yourself by your works. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You are saved for works in Ephesians 2, 10. Okay? So, that, now, so now that's the Christian spiritual life is the work the walk by the Spirit and the work that we're called to do. And you, I really believe you can, you can draw a circle around all the Christian work. And it's spelled A-G-A-P-E in Greek or L-O-V-E in English if you know what that means. And so we're looking in the Christian spiritual life about special enablement for every single believer, a special enablement for every single believer to love to do what God wants us to do. We looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, and Ephesians 4 on Wednesday night on the topic of spiritual gifts, and we keep seeing this consistent theme. Now, we're more conversational first hour, so I want to ask, what is the consistent theme in the spiritual gift passage? What's going on by way of review? Some of you are here. Some of you know the passage from memory. Some of you are speed reading right now. Okay? What is this consistent theme on the teaching of spiritual gifts when you summarize it. I'll give you a hint. 1 Corinthians 12 lists spiritual gifts and points out how the Corinthians are getting it wrong in their prioritization of the gifts. But then 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't talk much about spiritual gifts except to say you need something for them to be properly functioning. You you need love. You've got to, to see it as the expression in a special way of Christian love when you function within your gift. That's really the biggest teaching and we're going to see it in Romans 12. It's, a, it's the same thing. When Paul thinks about gifts, he thinks about Christian love. Now, let's see if I can, if I can show that without the word love. In Ephesians chapter 4. Y'all walk with me on something. In Ephesians 4, we have the expression of the communication gifts. Just he doesn't list all the gifts. He's talking about communicators for edification in 411, prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But then look what they're for in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. What else? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, okay, to the building up of the body of Christ. So that it's it's the spiritual gifts that communicate are to build up and mature the body of Christ so that everybody is functioning within their gift, so that everybody's part of this building project, so that everyone is, ha- has a shovel in the work. We're all on the same project. 
The communicators have their role, but their role is to equip everyone to do their role. So when you get to verse 13, we're not done until when? It's never finished. We're never done with the construction project that calls for your spiritual gift to function in a mature way through the word of God. We're never done till when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So as I said, the most beautiful language in the Bible to describe the life process of spiritual growth and service that, that is the Christian spiritual life. I think verse 13 is a huge summary statement of the Christian spiritual life. Now, how do you connect verses 12 and 13 to Christian love? Verse 12 is the communicators communicate so that everyone grows spiritually and functions within their ministry to build up the church, the body of Christ. And then we're not done until we're mature putting on the character of Christ. So until the the resurrection. How does this relate to the concept of Christian love? I can't think with the little birdies chirping. I can't, no, I can't. I, you, you can't, no, you can too. How, how, how does this idea of every believer growing spiritually into his and her spiritual gift, into the expression of that gift in the way the church is being equipped in, in the sense that we're never done until we are all putting on Christ to the extreme so that the resurrection and glorification Uh, phase of our sanctification so this phase will never be done how does this relate to christian love okay amen right so the love so 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 some of the maturity discussion in john 15 is about the fruit of the spirit and and bearing fruit and we would connect that to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Right. So, but how, listen to the concept in verse 12. He says, the function of these gifts is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up, the edification of the whole body of Christ, to the end that we're all putting on Christ. What is Christian love? What is it? Yeah, okay, so you've got, you've, yeah, you've got to do something to love someone. It isn't love if I don't do it. Be clothed, be fed. See, I'm haunted by these verses. Yes, sir? Selfless actions to the benefit of the other person. And you just said a really important word, Jack, that I think we need to unpack a little bit. The benefit. What is the benefit? What is the good? What is the goal? What is the desire that God has for you? For you, for you, for me, for all of us. What does God want for each of us ultimately? To be conformed to the image of His Son. To put on Christ. To grow up. To function within the design He's given us. God's ultimate goals for us, understand this, they're spiritual goals. You see what I'm saying? The greatest and highest and best for you is not that you figure out how to catch, get your taxes in on time. 
That's a good thing. Nice to have that. But that's not the greatest. It's pretty far from the greatest. The greatest and highest and best for you, according to the Word of God, is verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That you have more of Jesus Christ, that you think more like Him or like Him, that you express the character of Christ in your life. You know, that whole Christian life thing that's spiritual, you can't see it, you can't touch it, but you're living it. You're loving, self-sacrificially. You're serving. God's goal, God's greatest for you is the, is the spiritual, mature Christian expression of worship to Him. That's the highest and best. It really, when you open the present and, and it's inside, you, it's, it's, inside it, it's God Himself. A relationship with Him that's real and vibrant and that is based on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a constant engagement with His Word. The highest and best for you is your spiritual life fully expressed. So when I think of you, when you think of me, when we, we want to say, I want to love, okay, I'm going to do this, this love thought and think through what does the person need? What does God want for this person? How do I involve myself in that? It's Ephesians 4.13, the spiritual maturity and glorification of God through the expression of my life. And so everything I am is His, I belong to him. I'm here for his service. That's my attitude. I've got a special equipping from the Holy Spirit to build up the body of Christ, to love in this sense and equip others to love. And as I grow spiritually, I function within that. And by the way, don't worry so much about your gift. Worry about your mission. The command to love. Worry about what God has told you to do because the gift is the special enablement for you to do that. So, that's the way we think about this. And, and so the effectiveness of the gifts, in, even in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, 13, is about the function of Christian love. Let me, let, me, let me back up or zoom out a little bit and make this really straightforward, really simple. There are basically two kinds of people, okay? And both need Jesus, everybody's a nail and I've got a hammer. It's the gospel and it's the word of God. All right. There's two kinds of people. There are people that don't have eternal life and people that do. People that don't have Jesus Christ and people who do have Jesus Christ. People who are standing on their own relative righteousness and people who have been declared righteous by the blood of Christ. People who don't believe and people who do. That's the two kinds of human beings there are. That's what Galatians 3.28 and passages like it are saying. There's no distinctions. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's two kinds of people. Unbelievers and believers. That's God's design, not mine. Both parties are need to be objects of my love. And I need to think about both kinds of people, depending on who I'm dealing with, about what is God's best for this person. What is God's best for the unbeliever? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The unbeliever needs eternal life more than anything else. And if I can feed him a a sandwich because he's hungry so that I can communicate eternal life by a concrete example, a physical example, then then I'm going to open up a soup kitchen and I'm going to do that. I'm going to help someone come to know Christ 
through, this, through, through charity, through the help of physical needs. But I'm never going to lose sight that this, this type of person who doesn't know Christ needs eternal life. Doesn't need to eat today and, and then be hungry tomorrow. Needs to eat one time, if you will. Believe in Christ as Savior and then have eternal life. That's one kind of person. And love for that person is expressed highest in our efforts of evangelism. What's the other kind of person? It's a believer. What do they need? They need to grow in the Word. They need to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The last words we have from the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 3.18. They need to grow up because in growing up, I become capable of serving in a mature way. And as I serve, as God works through me, I am glorifying Him. And I'm telling more and more the truth about who He is. I like to say, we're kind of like a mirror that reflects God's glory back to Him. It's not our glory, it's His glory. But we are glorious as He lights us up. And the thing about a mirror is it's got to be polished. And we're talking about some really really gnarly mirrors that really have to be worked on pretty, pretty, with some pretty rough abrasive to get it to be shiny as it possibly can. Sometimes it's not as, sometimes it gets rough. God's got to knock off some of that, some of that rough spots. You ever have to use Brasso? Ever have that, that belt buckle or, or, um, or cover insignia that has to be shined to a mirror shine? Starts off rough and has to be shined up. I once did. I, I, don't, I don't miss doing that, but it's a great illustration. What are you guys doing? Shining our belt buckles. What are you doing now? Shining our belt buckles. What are you guys doing later? Shining our belt buckles. What about your shoes? Then the shoes. But, but see, that, that process, it's an ever-continuing process of God making us, smoothing us out to glorify Him, to, to to reflect his glory. And the glory of God doesn't change, but we change in our ability to reflect it. Isn't that true? So that, that believer, if you're gonna love me, if you're gonna love a believer, then the greatest and highest and best thing for him, having eternal life, like the unbeliever needs eternal life, is to live it, is to grow up spiritually, to glorify God in how we are saturated with the word and thereby filled with the spirit to perform what God wants us to perform. Now, I just said the unbeliever, the way you love him is evangelism. The believer, the way you love him is teaching in the word. But it's not just teaching to listen, to leave. It's teaching as the first step in a whole process that means a life transformation, a little bit at a time, a little bit of polishing at a time with an ultimate constant result of glory to God and how we live. The unbeliever needs the gospel. The believer needs the word and to grow in it and practice it. These are the highest and best things for all types of humanity, the unbeliever and the believer. See what I mean? It's real simple. Now, I'm happy to report that this is not my theological scheme that I've reasoned through, but my reasoning has brought me back to the first statements of the Lord Jesus Christ to summarize what we're doing today. And that's in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. When Jesus, on his last words to the disciples in Matthew, before he leaves the scene as Matthew portrays it, are to make disciples. Guess how you make disciples. For unbelievers, you evangelize them, and the end process is baptism, the proclamation that they're believers. 
For believers, you teach them to keep all that he commanded. And guess what? In both cases, we're loving, we're seeking God's best for the other person. And so, back to our spiritual gifts in Romans 12. There are three paragraphs or so, three or four paragraphs in Romans 12. We'll look at next hour, actually. But I want to focus in on the one on spiritual gifts, the spiritual gift paragraph, which begins in verse 4. What's wrong in Corinth is they have the wrong attitude about their gifts. Arrogance about my gift, the, the, the tongue speakers, the, the language guys are being propped up as the super spiritual in Corinth. That's 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And Paul's saying you're not even evaluating the gifts properly and you're misusing them. And it's possible to misuse this spiritual enablement of God. I, I don't purport to understand how that is so. I just know it is so from the text. You can misuse a special enablement of God which is designed by Him to build up the body of Christ. You use it for something else. And so attitude in Corinth is everything. It turns out whenever Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he's talking about attitude. The gift list starts in four, but the attitude is in verses one through three. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship, and to not be conformed to this world or this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The attitude that comes through that little three-verse summary is what? What's the attitude? Somebody said it. Humility. Humility. What does humility say? In a world. In a world. (laughs) It's a trailer. In a world where there's a creator and we are not him. In, in the frame of the universe in which we actually exist, where God is prior to all that he created, I mean, zoom way out with me, okay? It's really easy to say four little words that help me every day of my life. Four little words. And it's not, I love you a lot. It's not about me. If I think it is, I miss the significance God has encoded into reality for me. I miss the point of me when I start thinking that I'm the point. Wow, somebody write that down. I like that. Steve. God's will be done. Yeah, everywhere you go. The Lord's model prayer, first thing, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a, that's a statement of attitude. It's also a request for judgment. For the God's will on earth as in heaven, there's going to have to be a major disruption. <laughs> there's coming major disruption. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, not as I will, but your will be done. It's the attitude. It's the constant second thought that um, there is a God, and I'm not Him. And so, but, but I am for Him. 
He wants me. He wants me to serve him. And that's, that's verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. Before we ever get into the way God is maturing you to serve him in this Christian mission of edification of the body of Christ as the greatest expression of love for one another, before we get into the gifts, we've got to get the attitude. And so now verse 4 is the rationale, 4 and 5 is the rationale about different gifts, same function, or same uh, mission, different roles, same mission. He says, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, meaning God, by his sovereign grace, decides what you're going to do, what your mission is. You didn't choose it. He chooses it. It's, it you don't take credit for it. It's his grace. And so when you, when you find yourself firing on all cylinders in your giftedness and your and, and your spiritual life is connected to your service so that the word is being expressed through your life and you find specific things that appeal to you, that occur to you, that you want to do and you see it as edifying to the body of Christ, you're, you're working in your giftedness and you're grateful to God. You're a living sacrifice. God, my whole life is yours. That's verse one. So that when you see the expression of giftedness, you just praise God. You never praise man. You say, this is, your, this is your good thing, God. You, you've done this. Thank you for letting me be part of it. And, and it's interesting because we want to say, well, God's on the field and we're the spectators and we just get to marvel at his glory. And that's true in a sense, but in another sense, no. He's got us on the field. Every one of us. He's got a, a role for us all to play. And now I would like to illustrate different gifts, one mission, one body with different functions. And I would like to tell you about a basketball team and how everybody's got their job, or a football team, and how everybody in the field has his job, or a baseball team, and how everyone in the field has his job to do. But all these are great illustrations of this simple thing that you can grasp without any illustrations. My hand, my ear, my eye, as Paul will do in, in 1 Corinthians 14, they're all functional members that have a specific task that only they can do. And God knows what he's doing when he puts the body together. My favorite illustration of this, of course, is special operations military uh, teams. Like, like, a, like, a, like an A team in the, in the special forces. I want to talk about that. I know a little bit about that. I don't know as much about sports. I think the guy that throws the ball in football is a quarterback, but I don't want to be offensive. Anyway... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty rough. So, so in, in, in a special forces team, um, you have different, different people uh, who, who are essential to the function of the team. Anybody know what some of the jobs are on an, on an A team? Yeah. Yeah. You know what all the positions are. You were on an A team in special forces? I'm talking about this more. I'm going to talk about things I really like more because these things come out. I didn't know you were in the Special Forces Reserve. That's fantastic. All right, so um, let me get my, my microphone over by you. What, what are the jobs on the A-team in, in, the, in the SF? I just told. But we didn't hear it. Say it again. <laughs> Light weapons, heavy weapons, medic. Um, the medics are actually doctors, really. Um, intelligence, 
Is there a communication specialist? So what's, the, what's that team's mission? Generally, it's training a large force that isn't our own national force at some other allied country. That's generally the mission, right? But they are their own team that have to work together, and they have various missions that they're given within that main mission. But, and, they do, and they know each other's job. Each one knows the other's position to a, to a point. But let me give you an example of how that breaks down. I can do first aid and I can go through some really important life-saving skills with, you know, somebody bleeding out or, or rescue breathing or something like that. But I think if you say the man's a doctor or your medic is more like a super corpsman or something, um, he could do, can he do an appendectomy? Maybe if he had to. The Navy corpsman can. And so there's a point where that skill set is so high, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to replace that person. But, but so what I'm saying is, when you have a team that has one mission, the, the light infantry guy isn't telling the medic his job. The medic guy has been to school and he's really good at it. That's why he's on an A-team. And so, and you don't want the medic guy, probably you don't want him telling the light weapons guy what his job is. But you want everybody to be as excellent as he can be in his mission. And here's the interesting thing about spiritual gifts. You don't have to, wet, you don't have to sweat it. Oh, I don't know if I'm getting in the right school. Don't worry about this. Spiritual gifts are a function of spiritual growth. If you grow into what God spiritually, genetically has made you from the new birth, if you grow up, you will be what he wants you to be. You'll function in the giftedness he wants you to function. And let's review real quick. What's the mission for the function of gifts? What's that mission that we, we keep talking about? What do we need to be doing with our gifts? Building up one another, which is an expression of Christian love. It's, a, it's an expression of love to do what the giftedness calls for. So he says, since in verse 6 we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, and then every Bible in English has to supply a lot of words that are not in the original. Because Paul doesn't give you a sentence, he gives you a list. And so I like the New American Standard, paraphrase as much as anyone's. He says, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. There has to be a way to express in this, in this next two verses that there is an imperative being commanded. There, it, there is a requirement being expected by the nature of the participles which follow. So to each of us is to exercise them accordingly. We're supposed to do what we are. Don't try to do something you're not. Do what you're marked out to do. So he says... If, for example, your spiritual gift is prophecy according to the portion of faith, I believe that's the objective use of faith, that which you understand of the word of God. I think this is a, a, a reference. If you watch prophecy in the New Testament, the New Testament prophets, those are that are delivering special revelation from God. And I think that's what the New Testament is, is the prophetic word of God. They're always supposed to agree with already revealed scripture. There's never a new prophecy which will which will argue with, with God's word. And this is the test of the prophets, for example, in Deuteronomy. If service in his serving, guess what the word for service is? Deacon, diakonia. If it's the office, possibly, because he says if in diakonia, then, then in diakonia. He says it twice. And so we think it probably means in the office of serving, then in his service. 
Deacons are servants. That's what that word means. If one who teaches in his teaching, one who exhorts in his exhortation, one who gives with liberality, one who leads with diligence, one who shows mercy with cheerfulness, how absurd would it be if the special weapons guys or the special and heavy weapons two guys on the team build a mutual admiration society about being the weapons guys and they start to disdain the medics. Well, that's stupid. Because what happens when you shoot a machine gun is other people start shooting at you because they want that thing to shut up. It's going to kill their friends. And so a machine gun becomes the number one target for riflemen. And if a rifleman is shooting at a machine gun, what's that machine gunner going to need? A medic. So it's absurd to say, well, you guys are just medics. Well, yeah, we are till you get shot. And then we're, save me, mama. <laughs> and so it makes no sense when you say God has given the gift for us to think other than it's the grace of God. And we praise him for his service. This is the horror. And that's where I'll stop now. This is the horror of Christian ministry. It's competition. Competition distraction, disdain. It's, it's baby talk because this is interesting. You are what you are. I, I think from the new birth, I think God makes you what he's going to raise you to be. By, I think giftedness happens when you first believe. You get your spiritual gift when you become a believer and then you grow into its expression. I think that's, that makes sense with the, with the growth paradigm. Little kids think that, they always get confused about what, what's important. They think, the, they think the wrong thing is the thing. Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a this or I'm a that. And they think they're special because of what they are. You're special because of who God is, right? You're special because of what he's done. You're gifted in something that he has done. So to disdain someone because they're a different gift or to look down on their giftedness is idiotic. It's Corinthian baby talk. It's immaturity. And some exhorters need to exhort or parakaleo, uh, one who comes alongside, whatever that means. And it, an encourager, I think, would be a better translation. Needs to encourage a teacher in your teaching. Oh, you know, I'm really not very good at exhortation. Or I, I, I'm not one of these encourager guys that's just, when I'm around, people are encouraged. I'm not like that. Well, that's not your gift, right? I'm a very downer. I constantly tell people they're sinners. It's a teaching thing. That's very encouraging, Pastor. But if you start thinking it through, the teaching has its effect. And then if you're an encourager by gift, you take that truth, that reset of reality, and you go use that gift to encourage or give or whatever your gifted is, giftedness is. You, every one of you is a seal, uh, sorry, a, a, an A-team member. You all have an awesome responsibility by an awesome giftedness. Did you know you have a spiritual gift? Do you know what it is? It's a matter of growth. This is the most interesting thing about it all. We walk by faith, not by sight. I've said it before, I wish he had stamped me with what I am so I'd know what to do. But he didn't do that. I think you should pray regularly for your church family, for everyone you know, to grow up into the expression of their gift and to have the joy of knowing that they're, pardon the expression, they're that cog in the machine that's doing its job. They're that part of the, uh, they're, they're that cell in the body that's actually functioning properly. What a joy to know your, your niche and, and fit in it and do it. It's, it is delightful. Let's pray for that delight. Our Father, we thank you for spiritual gifts. We thank you for the grace that you've expressed through your word. 
for the privilege we have to be saturated with it and for the principles we've looked at today, Father, that attitude precedes function. That if we humble ourselves before you and recognize that your gifts are your grace and we have no boast except in you. If we'd learn to embrace the giftedness of one another and not be competitive and not be immature, but grow up spiritually to the function of these gifts, that we could rejoice in seeing each other reflect your glory. Father, let us be about this business as we love one another. In Christ's name, we all said, amen.